The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is part of a larger uh, legislative package uh, known collectively as the Compromise of 1850. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act really deserves specific mention. It was uh, referred to as the Bloodhound Law uh, by its uh, dissenters and detractors, and for good reason. Uh, it was so destructive, really, to the overall public and political discourse at the time that uh, it is often attributed as being one of the uh, kind of, not necessarily the causes, but uh, indicator of the looming uh, civil war. Uh, it was also instrumental in kind of a, a backwards positive fashion because it forced uh, Northerners who were ambivalent on the issue of slavery, uh, they were forced to take a position. Uh, so in that respect, uh, through its totalitarian overreach and clear constitutional abuses, uh, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act did uh, really solidify the anti-slavery sentiments uh, in the North by forcing uh, those who just wanted to claim the Switzerland defense as uh, having it to take a side. And it did this, uh, among other ways, by requiring uh, free citizens and free states to assist in the apprehension and uh, subduing of presumed or accused fugitive slaves. Uh, as one can logically assume, this created an, a kidnapping enterprise uh, where southern bounty hunters would often go into the north, really find any black usually drug or in, other way, or in some other way mug them and kidnap them, take them to the south, and sell them as slaves. Now, since the colonial era, era uh, numerous states had passed uh, various uh, liberty laws, uh, ways to protect not just fugitive slaves, but free blacks. Uh, northern free blacks were always at risk of being kidnapped and abducted by southern uh, uh, Bounty hunters is almost too kind of a term. We'll say slave traffickers. How about? And so many states passed laws that required uh, habeas corpus, uh, trial by jury, you know, the things that you're supposed to have. Uh, so it's really just a reiteration of established norms, but making sure that those were applied at the state level to that particular group of targeted individuals. Uh, and, of course, those laws were natural extensions of uh, natural rights theory. Uh, and as such, they applied to blacks as well. Uh, all of these laws were effectively nullified by the 1850 Act. And that was one of the most galvanizing uh, and, and frustrating aspects of the Act uh, for most of the history of the United States at this time, it was understood that slaves had a, or uh, states rather, had a specific kind of sovereignty, uh, not to be confused with the erroneous states' rights arguments that's presented uh, generally on in, in defense of slavery and unfortunately has been uh, really kind of uh, demonized because of white supremacists and slaveholders of the Democratic Party throughout history now make the concept of states' rights uh, a pejorative. Uh, but uh, a brief reading of the act uh, really highlights uh, how awful it was, uh, and especially in just, just on the inherent level of overreach. Um, 
So in summary, um, it punishes any citizen who refuses to participate in uh, the apprehension of, of uh, alleged or accused fugitive slaves. Uh, of course, this is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment, uh, and it further violated the Fifth Amendment because it levied massive penalties against citizens who were not accused of committing a crime, but they were accused of not helping capture slaves. Uh, of course, these these uh, these alleged fugitives were denied their own due process rights. They weren't given a grand jury or whatnot either. And further, this law actually incentivized uh, both judges and magis- magistrates who were exercising unconstitutional judicial authority uh, to decide against the accused fugitive slave. Uh, they were compensated at a higher rate by the federal government. Uh, for finding guilty uh, determinations for fugitive slave cases. So there's even a monetary incentive to find any uh, black accused of being a slave as being a slave. So Section 5 really kind of expanded this anti-constitutional assault. It empowered uh, federal marshals with the authority to command any and all citizens to function as a posse comitatus in the location and apprehension of alleged slaves. Now, if you refuse to participate, you could be fined under Section 7 of the Act, and the fine at that time was $1,000, which $1,000 today, that's pretty hefty, just for for refusing not to, you know, football tackle a fugitive slave. Uh, But if you adjust that fine for 2022... That would be a fine of almost $37,500, so crippling, if you will. Uh, And Section 6 of this act prohibited the uh, accused fugitive slave from testifying on their own behalf. So just just egregious constitutional abuses afoot here. Now, and... uh, Obviously, the act violated Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution also because it allowed uh, magistrates to exercise judiciary powers. And judiciary powers were specifically enumerated in the Constitution, again, in Article 1, Section 3. So this was an illegal delegation of power down to magistrates who were not even a part of the court system. And they certainly had not been... Uh, ordained and established by Congress, which is uh, required uh, in the Constitution. Uh, so you had a series of not judges acting as judges and then getting compensated at a higher rate for finding guilty verdicts. So no problem there, right? And what's what's truly interesting about this act, though, is that the South did not praise it. Uh Generally, they were discontent because they felt like there should be more enforcement mechanisms. Um, So they uh, actually compared uh, the subsequent additional state laws meant to enforce habeas corpus, uh, right to trial by jury, trying to combat the 1850 slave law, which had really was the story of slave legislation throughout the history of the United States at this point, was... Southern slave states trying to enact laws to protect it. Northern states trying to just protect natural rights and uphold the Constitution through their legal system. And the 1850 Act is a a rare instance where the law would seemingly be beneficial to the southern slave states, but it simply wasn't enough for them. 
So in the Charleston Mercury, which was a the most widely circulated Southern newspaper, uh, and of course it was uh, owned and published by a Democrat fire eater, uh, it decried the terrible uh, insistence on habeas corpus uh, as a sanctions the violation of all faith with the slaveholder, the robbing of his property, and the taking of his life. So it should be kept in mind, of course, that simply insisting on habeas corpus it wasn't the same as just kind of unilaterally declaring a fugitive slave free from the from the act. He would, if he or she was, in fact, a fugitive slave, that they would be returned to the uh, to the South and whatever supposed owner they had. But simply adding that step is conflated as murdering slaveholders. So you see this kind of continuation, this really, really escalated incendiary rhetoric uh, by the Democratic Party, uh, or even a law that was really productive to their use. Any perceived lapse in that law, and in this case, uh, a state law that wouldn't even free the slave if he or she was in fact a slave, uh, they they compare that to murder. So they're telling their southern population, hey, northern states, by even slightly observing what's been an understood right under English common law for hundreds of years, they're trying to kill you. They're trying to rob you of your property. And, of course, that's always an interesting point that they make because uh, over three-quarters of white Southerners owned no slaves anyhow. Now, there was a, uh, if one can find the silver lining, other than galvanizing the North against slavery uh, by forcing their participation and risk in threatening federal punishment for not participating, uh, we, uh, the Underground Railroad saw a surge in, pro- in, in activity. Uh, it had existed prior to the 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Law, but just like the North more generally became far more politically active in the slave uh, issue at the time, or at this time, after, after the law was passed, the Underground Railroad also expanded, grew, organized, and uh, and really, really began to... Uh, build that reputation that has uh, forever and rightfully solidified it uh, in favorable position in in American history. Uh, It also inspired the creation of numerous self-defense groups. I love these especially. Uh, I'm a big proponent of the natural right to self-defense, Second Amendment, all these wonderful things, um, which I would encourage you to listen to uh, the weekend episode number two, which I explore those uh, subjects specifically. Uh, to great extent. Uh, but pursuant to that understanding, uh, groups of both white and blacks would come together, train, uh, acquire weapons, and develop strategies to defend themselves because this law was abused routinely to abduct and kidnap free blacks from the North and resell them in the South as slaves. Uh, many respects, that was a much easier market than trying to uh, find a particular slave, you know, let's say in New York City, if a slave escapes there, it's going to be very difficult to find, but not so difficult to find any black, drug them, and then sell them in a Louisiana slave market. So you had numerous uh, self-defense groups pop up uh, during this time period, and they were actually very effective at, uh, at defending 
not just fugitive slaves, but legitimate free blacks in the North. Of course, you know, uh, the North had uh, gotten rid of slavery uh, as early as uh, 1804 with uh, really largely before even the 1800s, but going by technicalities here. And, you know, this is 1850, so the southern states, southern democratic states, they are just full bore into the slave institution at this point. Uh, So one of the uh, best responses to this act was, of course, by uh, Frederick Douglass, um, amazing human being, amazing man. Uh, One of the uh, most formative books I've read in my life was his his autobiography. Um, And... Unfortunately, uh, the speech that he gave largely in response to this act um, is very much selectively quoted as a larger condemnation of America and the founding, which is uh, very much untrue. Uh, Douglas being extraordinarily well-versed in American history uh, and the founding era specifically, uh, he uses the present circumstances as a foil to the founding era, not to malign the founding era, but to say, look at how far we have fallen from those guiding principles that founded the nation and from those fathers of the nation that put into place these systems that were meant to destroy slavery and look how that system has been perverted. And again, it's important to recognize um, that this was a circumstance that really only persisted in southern states at this time. Uh, the North, for uh, much to its credit, uh, which it, the Republican Party hadn't yet formed, but the uh, northern elements were already well on the way, and the Whigs, uh, free soilers and whatnot. Uh, but they were passing laws to try to protect blacks. So, uh, and the speeches uh, were specific to the 1850 law, Uh, the uh, venerable Frederick Douglass. He writes, and I quote, The fugitive slave law law makes mercy to them a crime, them being slaves, of course, and bribes the judge who tries them. An American judge gets $10 for every victim he consigns to slavery, and five when he fails to do so. The oath of any two villains is sufficient under this hell-black enactment, to send the most pious and exemplary black man into the remorseless jaws of slavery. His own testimony is nothing. He can bring no witnesses for himself. The minister of American justice is bound by the law to hear but one side, and that side is the side of the oppressor. Let this damning fact be perpetually told. Let it be thundered around the world that in tyrant-killing, king-hating people Loving, democratic, Christian America, the seats of justice are filled with judges who hold their offices under an open and palpable bribes and are bound in deciding in the case of a man's liberty to hear only his accusers. And Douglas is completely justified in his observations and his condemnation here. And the reason that that justification exists is specifically because of how far removed this reality was from the founding doctrine from the uh, words and wishes and the systems put into place uh, by the founding fathers, especially in the terms of justice. And see, he lines here, too, 
that all of these things have been done at the federal levels. These judges are only allowed to hear part of the testimony. So it's really not even the courts themselves, but what the courts have been perverted into by congressional legislation. Something that would, uh, this is a reality that would be uh, further compounded in the Dred Scott decision uh, through this through an activist Supreme Court uh, and the collusion with the Democrat leaders and the party at the time. So he, he then notes that the current circumstances were in rejection of the founding. So let's let's examine that part that is most often excluded from the conversation. Uh, Douglas, uh, he speaks, or slash quote, writes, Fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too great enough to give fame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes, and for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. They loved their country better than their own private interests, and though this is not the highest form of human excellence, all will concede that it is a rare virtue and that when it exhibited, it ought to command respect. He who will intelligently lay down his life for his country is a man whom it is not in human nature to despise. Your fathers staked their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. and their admiration of liberty, they lost sight of all other interests. They were peacemen, but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. They were quiet men, but they did not shrink from agitating against oppression. They showed forbearance, but that they knew its limits. They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. With them, nothing was settled that was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. You may well cherish the memory of such men. They were great in their day and generation. Their solid manhood stands out the more as we contrast it with these degenerate times. Now, it, it bears um, understanding that early in his uh, life as a free man, uh, Douglas was exposed to what was at the time considered radical abolitionism, uh, which generally uh, maligned the Constitution and founders as pro-slavery racists, which is uh, kind of an, an irony since that's kind of the current revisionist standpoint on things. Uh, so... Uh, radical abolitionists during the founding era and uh, even to an extent in the antebellum era uh, are being plagiarized by modern historical revisionists. But as D- Douglas talks about tremendous, or oftentimes in his many publications, speeches, and of course his autobiographies, was that as he came to uh, educate himself and understand the circumstances and really read their words, it really it radically transformed his understanding of the founding, the Constitution, and such things. So we see here uh, that process already almost completed. Uh, he still harbors a bit of kind of an angst against the founders. Man, one really can't judge the man for that. Uh, but he nonetheless has come to acknowledge that not only were they not pro-slavery or, pro- or racist, but they put into place institutions meant to destroy that thing, and that they 
compared to the present day, uh, just just demonstrate how far uh, the, the public and the government had fallen. Uh, now, often this speech is is construed as being uh, a kind of as, as Douglas trying to communicate some kind of hypocrisy, uh, but it's it's generally just that traditional means where they'll pick a couple sentences uh, and then use that and say, "Hey, look, here's you know two sentences out of a uh, twenty page speech, and we've determined what he means from these two sentences." Uh. So comparatively, no. But Douglas does offer a uh, very legitimate and fully justified criticism, and that is just reflects the uh, just the abject tyranny of the 1850 fugitive slave law and what it did also uh, for a lot of uh, ambivalent northerners is it shattered their hopes that simply living in a free state insulated you from slavery and this would become uh, even more pertinent uh, with uh, subsequent conspiracies and strategies implemented by Democrat administrations uh, to expand the power of the slave states. Uh, you have the, uh, and, and prior as well, uh, you have the Mexican-American War, for example, the annexation of Texas, uh, the controversy also of the Ostend Manifesto, of course, and the subterfuge in Cuba, uh, Democrats upholding uh, pro-slavery regimes in Nicaragua, wanting to invade the Yucatan, and then the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, effectively creating a miniature civil war uh, between uh, pro-slavery and free uh, free state uh, forces. Um, so they're their concerns were justified, and really this act played a critical role in changing the public perception on this, uh, a perception that would be addressed by Abraham Lincoln extensively against Stephen Douglas um, and the uh, infamous and terrible Dred Scott decision um, that should remind everyone of the present day and forever that the Supreme Court is not an omnipotent nine-member bench of demigods, but flawed by as human beings culpable uh, to sin and uh, corruption. Uh, but regardless, one of the leading concerns with that decision was that now having effectively opened the floodgates of slavery in the territories, it would, they were one lawsuit away and one Supreme Court decision away from forcing slavery into states that had already declared themselves to be free. Uh, so this this act, uh, generally not too far addressed, but it is instrumental in understanding this just volatile um, temperature and environment leading up to the Civil War. And this is all the way into 1850, so we've still got 11 years left before the states secede, and a lot of things happen in that time period, several of which we've already discussed. So if you've learned anything from this uh, episode today or you like what you hear, uh, give me a five-star review, uh, follow it, share, tell your friends, and please feel free to visit 1787project.com uh, to learn about uh, a six-volume series uh, that corrects the historical record on slavery in America.